Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Coming up on the show, a father and former coal miner on life after coal. I just need to uh, figure out what I can endure for the next 30 years. We'll also look into how budget cuts to substance abuse treatment might put Wyoming prisoners at risk for going back to drug abuse. I think that the, the vast majority of the people that are getting out that have addiction problems are going to relapse. A project on the Winds River Indian Reservation is studying whether backyard gardening could help combat diabetes and other diseases. We'll also learn about a new computer coding school in Cheyenne and learn how renewable energy industries are creating jobs. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. When it comes to energy issues, Wyoming's delegates to the Democratic National Convention did not see eye to eye with many Democratic Party leaders or their party's platform. Correspondent Matt Laszlo caught up with some of the delegates in Philadelphia and sent us this audio postcard. Bruce Palmer, and I'm from Lander, and I'm the vice chair of the Wyoming Democratic Party. What do you think about your party's platform when it comes to climate change and energy issues? Well, you know, certainly I think as Democrats we carry an extra heavy burden because we actually believe the science of climate change, and so, you know, that, that's challenging for us. And we recognize how important that energy is to the economy of the state of Wyoming. So, you know, I think what, what most of us in Wyoming who are Democrats would probably move toward is like an all of the above. You know, we we think that uh, coal is going to be part of a long-term strategy. Um, we're guessing that it'll probably become less of it as, as we go along. Uh, what we would like to see, though, is uh, more effort being put into uh, some of the different uh, technologies that could be employed to use coal, um, you know, whether it's sequestration or you know, something along those lines. And we also would like to see us moving the energy grid um, you know, toward more recyclables. I think we can be an energy leader um, in any of these fields. We have abundant wind, we have abundant solar. Uh, my name is Michael Bond. I'm a retired teacher and from Casper. You know, today I'm doing a feature on energy policy. Where are you on energy policy? Are you in line with the Democratic platform? Or? I, I am, but I also am very concerned about the interests of Wyoming. And so I, I think um, what makes sense is a you know, very um, well-planned, negotiated, um, I know we need to move away from fossil fuels to, to some degree and, and to encourage the use of renewable energy and clean energy especially for the environment. Uh, but I do know also that Wyoming coal is very clean and Wyoming gas is even cleaner. What do you think of the Republican charge of Obama's quote-unquote war on coal? Um, I, I, I think that is a misclassification in my opinion um, because it's not Obama's war on coal, it's um, it's the world's, and it's not a war on coal in particular. It's a war to make sure that our environment is clean. So that's the battle, is to make sure that we have clean energy that does not um, harm our climate and harm our planet and leave a planet that 
um, is going to be uninhabitable for children. Mary Throne, I'm the minority floor leader in the Wyoming House, and I'm from Cheyenne. And now you said you disagree on energy policy. What are your views on energy policy? Well, obviously, uh, Wyoming's an energy-producing state. It's uh, how I make my livelihood for the most part. Uh, I think uh, people on the coast don't really have the connection with natural resources that we do in Wyoming. And one reason I wanted to come, and I think it's important for people like me to be here, is to you know talk to other energy state Democrats to the extent we can. Um, you know, just participate in the process so we have a a, a place at the table. And how do you get that message across? Back to home or, or these people? Uh, because your well, platform is pretty... You know, you know, baby steps. Viola Nave St. Clair, and I'm from Fort Washakie, Wyoming. I'm Navajo and Cherokee, um, but I'm married to Eastern Shoshone, and that's why I'm in Wyoming. I think, um, <laughs> um, you know, air, water quality, that's important to um, Indian people. And... Um, it's, I mean, right now the Shoshone and Arapahoes in Wyoming are, you know, have the state fighting them on their TAS application, and it's only to monitor the, the quality of, of those elements. And um, we, would, we would love it if more of Indian country would get on board with that. I understand there's a big push in regards to trout, like in, in, in the um, northwest, you know, and there are other issues in the west too, but it's all important. Um, and I think that when your tribes are struggling to maintain their governments, and part of that is with the funding and, and, and taking care of their people, um, health care, that it's hard to say which one is more paramount to the other because it's all equally important, but we've really got to take care of the people um, and the governments, and so the funding's really important, uh, you know, and, and they all are related. That was an audio postcard sent to us from the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia by correspondent Matt Laszlo. On April 1st, Frank Thompson lost his job as a mechanic at Peabody Energy's North Antelope Rochelle mine. He was one of almost 500 coal miners laid off that day by Peabody and its competitor, Arch Coal. At the time, Thompson, who's a single dad, was most concerned about what being laid off would mean for his son. You know, he's seven years old, so he kind of sees it as some time to hang out. But I don't think he really realizes that this could be, a, you know, us moving away from here. Three months later, Thompson still isn't sure what the future holds, but he's trying to stay in Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce caught up with him at a park in his hometown of Douglas. A lot of people don't understand when you're out there, that's your life. And then you get laid off and your whole world crumbles. You don't talk to people that you were talking to for years on end. You don't see your best friend for a long time. I started out there as a wash tech, <laughs> washing equipment. The most miserable job in the world, it really is. And uh, I spent three, four months washing equipment and then I started fueling and I was fueling. I fueled for six years, five years. And then I got into the shop and started earning my keep there. And then I got laid off. I was sitting there for a couple of weeks just going, what am I gonna do now? You know, I've, I've worked in a 
area where you can't carry your skills to a different job. I just kind of have to figure out what I need to do. <laughs> to everyone's laying off or not hiring, you know, so really my only option if I want to stay here is try to get a degree. You know, I didn't have an idea what I wanted to do when I went to college the first time. Still don't have an idea what I want to do, but I know I have to do it. So I've been in the real world now. I know what I need to make to live a solid life, and I just need to uh, figure out what I can endure for the next 30 years and go at it that way. He's a great kid, smart, loves it here. And I really don't want to move. He likes it here, I like it here. He has family in this area, so try to stay here as long as we can. I just told him, I go, you know, they just couldn't afford to keep me around. He goes, oh. And I was like, yeah, it was just, uh, they gave me some money to leave, so I left. And he was like, okay, are we leaving? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, are we going to move? And I was like, no, I'm not going to try to move. He goes, good. I don't want to. I was like, all right, good talk. <laughs> you know, he just wants to know if he can keep playing baseball, if he can play football and fall and that's really all he's worried about which is fine because a seven-year-old that's all he needs to be worrying about he doesn't need to worry about the mortgage or anything like that you know i i try to tell him that hard work pays off and not to whine and ask for things that you haven't earned and for me to sit here and whine and say that it's not fair for me not to have a job because I don't have the qualifications is wrong. I don't have qualifications. That's why I'm going back to school so I can get some kind of qualification. The way I look at it is they did take care of me and I you know, I have everything I have because they gave me a job. But I also gave them eighty hours plus of you know, I gave them seven years and now I don't have anything to show for it, really. Yeah. So that's how I think of it. They can sit there and tell you how great it is all they want, but when it comes down to it, they take just as much as they give. No one wants to see these towns go away or anything like that, because this is a good place to live. But, you know, if the big picture, the state makes a bunch of money off of those mines, you know, and the state funds a lot of stuff around here. And if they can't do that, then this community is going to go too. And if the community goes, why would I want to stay here? You know, that's, that's kind of the big picture. But for right now, everything's maintaining. Not well, but it's maintaining. I'm not going to live with that. want to live make sure my son's taken care of and he can get a better education than I can I just want to work <laughs> you know I'm simple I just want to work I want to take care of my son and I want something to do that's the worst part about being where I'm at right now I'm so tired of just sitting around Frank Thompson 
That piece was produced by Stephanie Joyce, music by Chris Zabriskie. Next, we'll hear how budget cuts will affect the rehab services offered in prisons, and we'll talk to University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols about her plans to offer more higher education options to Native Americans. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Due to Wyoming's economic downturn, a number of state agencies have been required to cut their budgets to make up for a revenue shortfall that could reach $300 million. Among the cuts is a million dollars that the Department of Corrections uses for substance abuse treatment. At the same time, the Wyoming Department of Health is cutting its funding for local substance abuse treatment. Wyoming Public Radio's Liam Niemeyer reports some worry the cuts could harm those in and out of the prison system. Department of Corrections Substance Abuse Treatment Manager Sam Bourbet says the budget cut means his agency had to cut 98 substance abuse treatment beds in its prisons and completely cut treatment services for those who leave prison. Bourbet says it will change the way they have to do business. It, it's going to put us in a position to where we're, we're going to have to prioritize providing treatment to those who need it most. You know, it would be nice. I, I mean, if we had if we had the dollars to, to, to continue, but we're, we're going to have to make those tough choices. The plan is that all inmates will receive services from community mental health centers when they leave prison, if needed. The problem is that the Department of Health has been forced to cut funding to those providers. Jeff Holsinger with the Volunteers of America Treatment Center in Sheridan says mental health centers won't have the resources to treat the people they normally see, along with those who have been released from prison. There's only a certain amount of capacity, and we're at capacity, and we're beyond capacity. We have people on waiting lists, and now we're saying we're going to add a bunch more people. Well, we're at capacity. That's it. Holsinger estimates his facility's wait list will increase to six to nine months, a long wait for people leaving prison. Joe Niverson is a mentor at the Sheridan Treatment Center who is a recovered drug addict himself. He fears what might happen if inmates are unable to receive the treatment they need. It's sad to say, but I, I don't think they're going to make it. I think that the, the vast majority of the people that are getting out that have addiction or substance abuse problems are, are going to relapse long before six months. Which could land them back in prison? The easy solution is to put money back into both programs. Wyoming Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Tony Ross says that's not likely. There's no doubt that there's going to be pain here. I, I don't have any other great um, words of uh, wisdom for you there. They're, everybody's going to have to share in this pain, including the university, the community colleges, family services, game and fish. All of those institutions are going to face budget cuts. Senator Ross suggests that stakeholders work with local nonprofits to find a cheaper way to provide these services. Kip Dana with the High Country Behavioral Health Center in Kemmerer says Ross's idea is not a bad one. He says other states have done this, but Wyoming needs to act now. We need to be more reactive to this right now, and uh, people should be pulling, pulling their ideas together now. But I don't, but it's going to take somebody, I'm going to say in Cheyenne, it's going to take somebody crossing the traditional lines between the court system, probation, and the Department of Health, and that can bring these people together to work together and 
And I personally don't know who that leader is right now. Dana says it's clear that communication is seriously lacking. He says that needs to change soon. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Liam Niemeyer. Earlier this month, the University of Wyoming's new president, Lori Nichols, visited the Wind River Indian Reservation and sat down with business councils from both the Eastern Shoshone and the Northern Arapaho to talk about how to increase the number of Native American students at UW and how to make them feel more welcome. She told me it's an issue she's tackled before in her time as South Dakota State University's provost. We covered many topics, but one thing I heard about was just what are issues to them on the reservation on Wind River. So we talked a little bit about that. Where's the economy at? What do people do? Where are the jobs? Um, and then we talked about really just kind of the K-12 system and uh, where what they saw as the strengths and maybe some of the weaknesses with education on the, on the reservation. First of all, instilling in young people on the reservation, and we're talking even as early as elementary school, that they should put higher education into their thinking. In other words, it's part of their future. And then we talked about what is that path? How do we get then young people, young tribal people, to go from um, elementary school to middle school to high school and then on to higher education? And finally, we talked a lot about what the experience is like for young people when they come to the University of, of Wyoming. Yeah, and that's, um, I think, you know, as I've been talking to tribal members, and one of the issues that has come up quite a bit is just how to make uh, Native students feel more welcome once they get yes. to the University of Wyoming. You know, what wh- what work needs to be done from the university's end to make sure that, that the Native students that come feel like they can stay? Yeah, it sounds like we have work to do from what I can understand and from what I've heard. They don't always feel welcomed in at home here and in some cases I heard very specific stories um, which are troubling I mean of, of really students who were not treated well and so and that needs to be addressed because that obviously is not satisfactory and we're not going to do well in educating um, our tribal people in the state if we if we can't do better than that so I totally understand that um, one of the other things I just wanted to mention that I heard because I also was able to get out to several of the schools Uh, We talked a lot about preparation of students and are they ready to go to college, and we had some good discussion there. But one of the things we talked about is is that we really need to step up recruitment too, that students just aren't seeing enough of uh, role models and of even folks from the University of Wyoming in the schools, and they're not seeing them early enough and they're not seeing them often enough. And so another area we explored is this, how can we just step up our presence? Yeah. Now, I understand that one of the councilmen that you had met with, uh, one of the Northern Arapaho councilmen, Norman Willow, yeah. had brought up um, that President McGinnity hadn't apologized for the, the event that you had talked about earlier right. um, when there was a some, some high school students who were coming to visit to see if they might be able to, to come to the university had been taken aside at the bookstore thinking that they might have shoplifted. They come to find out they had not. That was quite a, a blow to the relationship between the university and, and the tribes. I just wondered what your response was to the councilman's concern that there hadn't been an apology. I had heard about it before. I had actually read some of the news articles about it. And I I just simply listened to him and just said I was so sorry because I wasn't here. And, you know, in hindsight, you can go back and you can look at that 50 different ways. 
but the bottom line is is that there were some things there that that probably the university did very innocently by giving these students these packs of materials or information and gave it to them before they walked into the bookstore how unfortunate it was too bad that they didn't just wait and give it to them afterwards you know there were just so many errors like that so uh, but the bottom line is is I, I am sorry it happened and I do apologize and and you know as I said earlier we need to do better you had mentioned an Indian center. Can you talk a little bit more about ideas like that or right. or retention officers that might be able to kind of make sure that kids are getting integrated into the into the culture of the university? Right, yeah. So that this is actually something that, that we did do at South Dakota State. So in 2010, we opened our first American Indian Education and Cultural Center. We felt like South Dakota deserved that. There's a lot of tribal people there. There's a lot of American Indian students, and we wanted to be more welcoming to them as well. In fact, that's exactly who staffed it, was retention advisors. So we staffed it with just three people, so it wasn't this massive staff in the beginning. They had all kinds of programs that they did in the center. We had a wonderful tutoring center. We had a great computer center. So there's a lot of academic things that happened in there, but they also could do things like bring in speakers. And we had Friday soup, and so every Friday at lunch, uh, somebody would bring in just a big bowl or a big pot of soup. I think the students felt very secure, very welcome there, and felt like it truly was a place where they could put up their beautiful star quilts, where they could have their drum, where they could do, you know, have their sage, do smudging, I mean, do the things they really felt like were important in their culture, and and we understand are important in their culture. Yeah. Now, yeah, you know, it's interesting because both of the tribes are really growing, Mm -hmm. and so it seems like there's a future there. So I'm guessing you probably talked quite a bit about okay, here it comes, this wave of Native students that we can really be taking advantage of and, and getting to know. Right. How did you talk about that, that younger wave? I, and they gave me the stats, and I don't remember, but a large part of their population is under 20. So it's a, part, a major part of the growth of the state. And, and, I, and I have always said, and I really believe this, is that as we work on diversity efforts on our campus, and we certainly need to be working on them, that I always feel like diversity should start at home. And, you know, what I mean by that is is that, first and foremost, you really need to look at the diversity within the state. And, and to the extent it can, the university should be a mirror image of that. Because we are a university. We're the land-grant university for the state. We are, we are the access point for a higher education for the state of Wyoming. And so if students truly from the reservation have the same access points for higher education that any other student in the state, we should be pulling in students from the reservation at roughly about the same rate as we do from others. And so that, that was my comment back is, is that as you grow, we should then also be seeing some of that growth and we want to be. Well, thank you so much, President Nichols, for meeting with me and talking to me about your meeting. It sounds like it was really productive. It was very productive and most enjoyable. What wonderful people. Yes. They, were, they were great hosts. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was University of Wyoming President Lori Nichols talking about her recent visit to the Wind River Indian Reservation. After our break, we'll learn about a new coding school in Cheyenne and hear how the closure of a coal mine affected a school district. That's coming up on Open Spaces.
Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Wyoming has a growing but mostly unnoticed software industry. The state has also made progress in developing data centers and tech companies. But a group of Cheyenne entrepreneurs noticed that the state lacked web developers and people trained to work in the technology industry. The newly created Array School of Technology and Design is hoping to change that. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more. Bob Jensen has spent most of his time in Wyoming thinking about improving the economy. For 10 years, he led the Wyoming Business Council, the state's economic development arm. Several months ago, during a meeting of some Cheyenne entrepreneurs, the idea of developing a coding school was pitched. And that discussion led to the development of a Ray School of Technology and Design in downtown Cheyenne. It is a grassroots effort to try and affect workforce quickly for a growing tech industry in Wyoming. Jensen is part of an eclectic group of six co-founders with a wide background in business and technology. To pull this together, they traveled to other coding schools, interviewed businesses, and determined that there was a serious need for an operation like this. Basically said, hey, here's what we're thinking of doing. Here's kind of the curriculum we'd be teaching. Do you guys have a need for these students? Do you have open positions? And basically the feedback I think we got was, why didn't you open yesterday? That's Eric Trowbridge, who goes by ET. He's a 2004 graduate of Cheyenne Central High School who left Wyoming and landed a job at Apple for eight years and then returned to Wyoming where he launched a video game company. In other words, he's your typical technology geek. The board decided that E.T. would be perfect to lead their school and develop the curriculum. As he sits among other young entrepreneurs in a refurbished shared office space in downtown Cheyenne, he explains that students will learn a number of key skills. We're going to be teaching everything from HTML, CSS, to user interface design, to color theory, to topography theory. Uh, Then in the last half of the six months, we're going to go into data Uh, database design and web application development. If that doesn't mean much to you, here's a translation. Generally what happens is a small business may look for like a template or using something like WordPress to create their websites. So we're not teaching that. We're teaching coders. These people can code from the ground up. So any kind of custom thing that you want or you have in your head, these people can do that. Trubbard says they plan to offer an advanced curriculum as they get established. Jesse Fishman is a Cheyenne attorney who specializes in working with new businesses. As a younger member of the board, she says this could be a big deal for Wyoming. I got really excited about the idea and the possibilities of what it could do, um, not just for Cheyenne, but for all of Wyoming, if we could have a technology hub here and a school here um, that could bring a lot of people here, that could kind of change the face of what Cheyenne and Wyoming look like. Cheyenne has been one community in the state that has had a lot of success creating jobs outside the energy industry and in attracting business. In an effort to enhance that, the city has been trying to clean up and improve the downtown to the point where it is attractive to young professionals. For that reason, board member Steve Boren says it's no coincidence that Array, the School of Technology and Design, will be situated in a refurbished older building in the heart of downtown Cheyenne. The more people we bring to the downtown, they start using more of the restaurants. It attracts their spouses or their partners and, you know, things grow. Fellow board member Bob Jensen has a number of Wyoming economic development contacts and has spoken to plenty of business owners. He says it's clear that there is a shortage of coders statewide. 
and we want to be able to impact the industry and have a pipeline of students ready to go to work in these companies that are continuing to grow here. Jensen says if they create the workforce, other companies will consider moving to Wyoming or possibly start up here, offering jobs that pay roughly $75,000 a year. The school is currently accepting applications and will choose 12 students who will begin the six-month program in October. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Sticking with the subject of employment, Wyoming, like other energy-producing states, is shedding jobs in coal, oil, and gas. But the renewables industry is growing nationwide, including jobs to make parts like wind turbine blades and towers. Wyoming wants to attract wind manufacturing jobs as part of an effort to diversify its fossil fuel-based economy. But right now, the state has none of these jobs. Neighboring Colorado has thousands. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson went to find out what's standing in the way, starting off in Cheyenne. From a distance, wind turbines are pretty sleek looking, but there's a lot going on behind those spinning blades. Brian Boatwright is an instructor in wind energy technology at Laramie County Community College. He takes me up. So this is our nacelle. Into a deconstructed nacelle that's used for teaching. It's a huge rectangular box, usually perched high up at the top of the turbine. You see the white pole, but then you look up and you see something that looks like an RV sticking there. Boatwright trains his students to fix the parts housed in the RV-shaped nacelle. So what I'm going to do now is turn on my hydraulic pump. Many of those students go on to be wind turbine technicians. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the fastest growing profession in the country. Sounds great, right? But here's the thing. As of 2014, there were only around 4,400 wind turbine technician jobs nationwide, and only a handful in Wyoming. Compare that to the number of people who manufacture wind turbine components, parts like nacelles and blades. The American Wind Energy Association estimates that across the U.S., there are around 20,000 of these workers. So bringing manufacturers to this state would be probably one of the most incredible things that you could ever do in the state of Wyoming right now as a short-term band-aid. To stop what Boatwright refers to as the bleeding of coal jobs, Wyoming has lost hundreds this year. Attracting this kind of manufacturing is part of Wyoming Governor Matt Mead's energy strategy for the state. But Ben Avery of the Wyoming Business Council says there are some big barriers, like a relatively small available workforce and distance to an international airport. And then there's a more political kind of barrier to growing the wind industry as a whole. One thing that everybody knows about, everybody makes the comment, oh, you're Wyoming. The only state in the country to tax wind production. Everyone says that. And that's not positive. And right now, Wyoming is actually considering raising that tax. But just across the border in Colorado, it's a very different scene. Over the past six years, Colorado has become a top wind manufacturing hub with 20 facilities spread out across the state, including this one owned by the Danish wind giant Vestas. Vestas is the largest wind manufacturer in Colorado, employing around 3,500 workers statewide. This factory opened in Brighton in 2010. 
All right, just to start off real quick, we're employing about uh, just over 400 employees at this particular facility. Our enthusiastic, fast-talking tour guide named Chris Welsh showed us around the vast factory floor. We're building the nacelle and the hub, so two separate assembly lines. The process of making these parts, he says, is straight assembly. Honestly, average men and women that are, that are producing these. It's just, we do have good skill sets, but it's not something great skill sets like master electricians and uh, general foremen from construction sites. He explains the workforce includes everyone from ex-teachers to convenience store workers. Hello there. Hi. I meet Scott Winner in his office just down the hall. I am the vice president and factory manager. Winner says Vestas chose to set up shop in Colorado because of access to rail networks, proximity to wind projects, and an available labor force, which he hopes will grow. But when I asked how much workers here make, trying to figure out what these jobs mean for the local economy. No, I can't comment on that. <laughs> I just can't. But what about media reports of $16.95 an hour plus benefits? I can say that you're in the ballpark of that, yeah. As communities all across the country try to figure out how to offset some of the job losses in fossil fuels, wages matter. Because the average Wyoming coal miner, the folks who are losing jobs by the hundreds, makes around $34 an hour, double that ballpark figure of $16.95. So even if wind factories did move across state lines, this shift alone wouldn't come close to replacing coal. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. When the largest coal producer in the world is in your backyard, their every move can cause a ripple effect. That's what happened when Peabody Energy failed to pay their property taxes in Route County, Colorado. The lapse left a tiny rural school district scrambling for more than $1 million. Colorado officials swooped in to save the day, but the fact that it happened at all raises questions about the district's future. From Inside Energy partner KUNC, education reporter Anne-Marie Awad takes a closer look. Driving down a mountain highway about 45 minutes south of Steamboat Springs, Darcy Moore passes by a train stopped on the tracks. We live right in town and we see the trains and hear the trains. Um, and they used to be often, daily, and now we hear one every five to six days. Moore is the superintendent for South Route County School District, or Sirocco for short. Those trains that she used to hear rumbling through town on a daily basis were carting coal from the nearby 20-mile mine, owned by St. Louis-based Peabody Energy. Cheaper natural gas has dealt a blow to the coal industry and to Moore's school district. This is Macy, and that's Colbert, yes, and that's yes, West, and, what's and I'm ready We arrive at Sirocco Preschool. Before it opened last year, there wasn't an affordable daycare program in this mostly working-class community. Director Tamara Bereznak just brought the kids back from meeting seniors at the community center. Who did we play bingo with? Two of our grandma and papas. All the grandmas and grandpas in Oak Creek. Yeah. This preschool, recently praised as exemplary by state officials, was in danger of closing just weeks ago. So I'm sitting here piecing together what this skeleton school district might look like and and we're looking at i mean less than bare bones you know no transportation our preschool we'd have to shut that down 
because it's not a legally required program. When Peabody Energy didn't pay its property taxes to the county last month, the district faced a $1 million shortfall. Moore scrambled to request aid from the state with the help of local lawmakers. A sympathetic state school board rescued the district. But still, they had to dip into their savings account just to keep the lights on for a few weeks. I refuse to believe that the state of Colorado would let South Route School District go under and stand by and watch. But Moore says the long-term outlook is difficult for the district. Peabody filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection earlier this year, and just last week, a federal bankruptcy judge approved the company's request to pay back taxes in four states, including Colorado. Kathleen Gephardt, a lawyer who runs the Colorado nonprofit Children's Voices, is noticing a trend. She's not involved in this case, but she's seen others like it. You have, you know, local property taxes dependent on natural resources, and natural resources prices tend to ebb and flow, then you're going to see the property taxes ebb and flow. And so you're going to see this impact on local schools across the state. Colorado relies more on property taxes to fund schools than many other states. The state also saddles commercial businesses like Peabody with a much larger share of the property tax burden, more than three times as much as homeowners. And when they don't pay up, government services funded by those taxes take a hit. Think libraries, fire departments, and hospitals. Superintendent Darcy Moore. South Route Medical Center is short about $55,000. Although that's really nothing compared to our million dollars, it's a big deal for them because it's also 30% of their budget. The county is loaning the medical center the money until Peabody comes through. That is, if they do. Since it's in the midst of bankruptcy proceedings, it's unclear what happens next. The Chapter 11 process can take years. Peabody's properties in Route County and in other states will continue to accrue taxes, but there's no telling if the company will be able to keep up with them while they restructure. Peabody said in a statement that the company, quote, prides itself on being a good neighbor, but they've offered no details going forward. Right now, communities like South Route are being tested to see how long they can get by without a big hunk of coal money. A representative for Peabody could not be reached for comment. For KUNC, I'm Anne Maria Wad. To wrap up today's show, we'll hear about a gardening project on the Wind River Reservation and talk to a geoscientist about new research on a Wyoming bird fossil. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. For the last five years, a pilot project on the Wind River Indian Reservation has been building backyard vegetable gardens for residents there. But so many people wanted to participate that the organizers applied for funding to get a full-fledged project off the ground with twice as many plots. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, the idea is to study whether gardening improves the many health issues on the reservation. Out under the cottonwoods in her backyard near Fort Washakie, Northern Arapaho member Pat Burgey shows off her new raised bed garden. Those are the tomatoes, strawberries. Over here I had done some cabbage inside. I brought them out and planted them, and those are what's gone. Gone because birds came and gobbled them up. The big ones, the uh, magpies, uh-huh, are the ones magpies. that went out. Yeah, they're the hoggy ones. <laughs> 
Burgi has high blood pressure and hopes to bring it down with the kind of exercise and healthy food you get from vegetable gardening. Burgi says to monitor those benefits, researchers put her through a lot of health tests. Well, they took blood for uh, diabetes, uh, blood pressure, and I think cholesterol. I'm not sure. Anyway, I remember the, the one with the blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she'll take those same tests three more times over the next two years. The project is called Growing Resilience. The National Institute for Health gave it $2.5 million to study the health benefits of gardening for five years on Wind River Reservation. Christine Porter is a researcher in public health at the University of Wyoming and one of the project's organizers. What happens is, randomly assigned, half the families get a garden right away, and half the families are serve as controls for two years, and they get a delayed intervention. It's a joint project partnering the University of Wyoming and tribal groups to find solutions to health problems on the reservation, like heart disease, which Native Americans are almost twice as likely to deal with as whites in Wyoming. But the biggest health disparity on Wind River is diabetes. Tribal members here are up to five times more likely to struggle with the disease than the rest of the state's population. She says the rations provided for tribes after the U.S. government placed them on reservations in the late 1800s likely sparked some of the unhealthy trends still seen today. Like fry bread was a very innovative development out of the lards and fats and white flour that people were given, and it's deadly. It's delicious, (laughs) but it's deadly. But Porter says the study will look at more than just diabetes and obesity. They're looking at 100 different health factors, physical and mental. I would be very interested to look at the impacts of gardens on things like substance use and abuse, which can also be an issue among a small subset. Native Americans, on average, actually drink, for example, alcohol way less than other groups. But those who do are much more likely to struggle with it being an issue. The original pilot project already showed conclusive evidence that gardening does have powerful mental and physical health benefits. Porter says over the next five years, she'll gather yet more health data from 100 Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho families. The tribal health advocacy group Blue Mountain Associates will handle the logistics, doing the hard work of building 100 raised beds and teaching people to garden. Northern Arapaho Dr. Virginia Sutter is Blue Mountain's president. She says at one point her tribe was forced to turn to farming. I believe it was Sharp Nose, who was my great-grandfather, and they settled over on the river, and the government said, you will no longer get the rations. You're going to have to plant a garden. So they gave them a plow, one plow for all these people. But Sutter says the northern Arapaho were Midwestern farmers before they moved onto the plains to hunt bison. And so they knew what to do with that plow. They used that one plow over on the Wind River Reservation, and they fed all of their vans. They just planted row after row after row after row, and they worked them. But Sutter says since then, younger generations have lost those farming skills. And that's why the project hired garden coordinators like Ethelene Potter to teach people how to raise their own food. Today, Potter's putting up a fence and bird netting to keep the magpies from eating Pat Burgie's seedlings. She shows Burgie how to get in and out of the new fence. I just bent this one right here, oh. uh, Pat, so you just need to take this one off of here. Very good. Then see what I mean, handy? I would have been like, how do I close this? <laughs> Coordinator Potter says her grandfather did lots of gardening on the reservation. He had fields of, like, strawberries and garden and his farming. He had his cattle, pigs, chickens, you know. And now she's teaching her own children and grandchildren. 
If we capture them, I think, at a young age, they'll learn to love their vegetables. Growing Resilience is still looking for families to participate in the study. To sign up, visit the Eastern Shoshone Tribal Health or the Wind River Development Fund. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Now to take a look at a very different time in Wyoming's history. 50 million years ago, Wyoming looked very different. It was tropical with lots of trees and wet, humid conditions. Scientists know this because of the many fossils found from this time period in the Green River Formation in southwestern Wyoming. Now, new research on one particular fossil is allowing scientists to paint an even more detailed picture of that world. Sterling Nesbitt is an assistant professor of geosciences at Virginia Tech and studied the fossil of Calciaphus grandii, a relative of modern-day ground-dwelling birds like ostriches and emus. He told Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard why this fossil is so unique. Calciaphus is a fantastic fossil because it's almost all there. It's almost 100% of the skeleton. It's probably all there. We just can't see some of it because it's locked in the rock. But not only do you have the bones of this animal, but you have soft tissue preservation, including scale patterns on the feet. So if you look at a chicken, there's some scales on it. This animal has the exact same features. And you have almost all the feathers in some form or another covering the outside of the skeleton. What did this bird look like when it was, you know, roaming the earth? This bird probably would have looked a little bit like a chicken. There's a group of birds that lives today called tinamous in South America. And chickens and tinamous spend almost all their time on the ground. They forage in the leaf litter. And they do fly, but only to escape predators. And once in a while, they'll fly for other reasons. But most of the time, they spend almost all their time on the ground. And we're inferring that for this animal based on its feet structure and other parts of the skeleton and uh, some of its behavior of its closely related relatives like tinamous or emus or ostriches. What was the climate like where and when it lived? What was its environment? The climate in Wyoming is really interesting at this time. So don't think high deserts at this time. Think more Central America or South America tropical forest. It was wet. It was very humid. There was a lot of water, lots of big trees. And this is a story that's been put together over the last, I would say, 100 years. And we're still finding all these animals that fell into this lake about 50 million years ago. And almost all of these animals tell us that it was a much more tropical environment. You have birds that are only found in tropical environments today. You have lizards, you have mammals like primates. They're all found in these tropical environments today, but were quite widespread in Wyoming and in Europe at this exact same time when the world was a lot warmer. And these forests basically spread from the low tropics where they are today to latitudes 
where you would find Wyoming, even Montana today. This is a spectacular fossil, incredibly preserved, even some of that soft tissue. Like you said, those scales on the feet, you can see that. Why is it rare to find such a complete bird fossil or, or even just a fossil? Well, vertebrate fossils by themselves are pretty rare. Most of the fossil record that we find as paleontologists are just fragments of skeletons. Bird fossils are exceptionally rare because their bones are so hollow and birds themselves are just small. It's a lot easier to find a 100-ton dinosaur limb bone, like a femur or a tibia, than a bird bone that's only maybe 5 inches long, 4 inches long. Not only are they small, but those bird bones are extremely hollow, so they get crushed by all that pressure of rock that accumulates on top of these fossils through the millions and millions of years. And what's really, really important about this is that we can use this complete skeleton to piece together all those fragmentary fossils that have been found for over 100 years in North America and Europe from about 65 million years ago to about 30 million years ago. So it really gives us a complete picture of the anatomy of this animal. And once we have the anatomy of this animal, we can place it into the reptile or bird tree of life and understand how it's related, and how some of these features have transformed over the last 50 million years. Your research on this bird was published last month, and the fossil is now in a museum. Do you feel like this research is done? Where do you go now? <laughs> For me, it's this research is done along this line. It's really exciting to see that this fossil, this spectacular fossil that people can see is on display at the American Museum of Natural History, part of a traveling exhibit looking at early bird evolution and carnivorous dinosaur evolution. A lot of times we find fossils as paleontologists and they're kept in fossil libraries. It's only the best fossils that are brought out for the public to see. These fossils like Calciavis are our only connection to past animal life on our planet. It's pretty amazing to think back to the time of dinosaurs when there's a hundred ton dinosaur walking around. Calciavis, of course, is not as large, but it really tells us that the world that we live in now is just a tiny little slice of life, and we are part of just one moment in Earth history. Sterling Nesbitt is an assistant professor of geosciences at Virginia Tech. He helped research and work on this project about the Calciavis grandii. Thank you, Sterling, so much for illuminating a little bit about this ancient bird. Thank you very much. The fossil is now on display at the Traveling Dinosaurs Among Us exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History. for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear an individual segment again, it's all available on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. On that site, you can listen to old shows, pitch us stories for future ones, and link to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and all of our reporters are on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. Thank you.